Well, hey, Hills Church family, it is so good to be with you on this particularly cold weekend, wherever you are watching from, whether that's in uh, this cold North Texas, or if you are somewhere else around the world, I'm so glad that you are with us. I hope you're warm and safe, and I'm excited to get into part two of the series we've been in, Second Guessing Jesus. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter two, and while you turn there, I also want to wish everybody a happy Valentine's Day. I am especially prayerful today for any uh, spouse or maybe maybe it's a boyfriend or a husband who procrastinated. And now if you're in North Texas, uh, some of these roads are getting closed down. Maybe these stores are closing. And so uh, I'm, I'm praying for you if you procrastinated to get anything today. Um, God's grace be with you. But having said that, uh, in this series, Second Guessing Jesus, we've been kind of wrestling with the fact that for a lot of us, we may not always doubt whether God exists, but we often wonder if he's right. And in that spirit, when Jesus came and had his ministry on earth, there were tons of people who second guessed him if he was really right about what he was talking about. That included his followers. It included people in the crowds who would come to hear him teach and see him minister. And it even included some of the religious elite who we're going to encounter in today's story. So that brings us to Mark chapter two. We're going to begin in verse one. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. If you are at all familiar with the life and teachings of Jesus, then I'm guessing that this story sounds familiar. And if you're somebody who's been around church for for maybe a few years or even a few decades, I would even go so far as to say, I bet this story is dangerously familiar. And I'm praying that this week we're going to maybe find and discover some new things. See, Jesus performed a lot of miracles recorded in the four gospels, these eyewitness accounts and and testimonies of his uh, ministry. But there's really only one time when somebody comes through a hole in the ceiling. Jesus healed lots of paralytics, but there's only one of them who was lowered down from the roof. And so it's fair that this story gets a lot of attention. It's even how we reference the story. All week, people have been asking me, hey, what are you preaching on this week? And I'm like, oh, you know that one where the guy comes through the roof? Like that's that's how we talk about this story. And it's pretty wild to think about. I mean, these four friends, they, they show up and they, they go all out to be able to make this happen for their paralyzed friend. I'm guessing they were from farther away because when they, cr- when they come, the crowd doesn't seem to recognize them or have any interest in helping. And so they come up with this idea where they're, they're going to get up and then they're going to dig through the roof. And it's at this point in the story that I begin to suspect we are dealing with some, probably some small town, hill country, 
fishermen. I mean, this was like a little bit of a, a crew who's, who's just willing to do whatever. They may, may have grown up in a town in northern Israel that maybe had more sheep than people. I mean, this has come some, there's some redneck reasoning going on, if we're going to be honest with their idea, but you got to admire them for it. And so this story gets a lot of attention because of these verses that we just read. And admittedly, there's, there's a lot there for us to unpack. We could, man, we could focus on the, the, uh, the topic of evangelism when we look at this story. Because these four friends do whatever it takes to get their friend in front of Jesus. And that'll preach. We could, we could focus on the topic of advocacy and activism on behalf of the marginalized or oppressed. Because these four friends, they show up with their paralyzed friend who would have been somebody who was looked down on in society as seen as, as less. Nobody wants to make space for them. And these four friends, they break physical and social boundaries to give this man a dignified place in society. And that's what God's church should be doing for the marginalized, for the overlooked, for the oppressed. And that will preach. Or we could even look at the fact that this is a picture of faith in action. Did you notice that Jesus, it says Jesus seeing their faith. It's interesting. This is the first time in Mark's gospel when faith is mentioned and it has nothing to do with words spoken and everything to do with actions taken. And that'll preach. But today we need to wrestle with how Jesus responds to this famous moment of tearing through the roof and lowering this man down getting all the crowd's attention who were, who were inside the house. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. See, we have to wrestle with that because it, it is the crux of this week's second guess. I can almost imagine the friends on the roof, like they've done all this work, they're still breathing heavy and, and they see their friend down and they hear just a, a bit of the rabbi's words and they're like, wait, what, what did he just say? No, somebody tell him he's paralyzed. Like this is not what they showed up for. They didn't do all this work. They didn't come all this way so that Jesus would just say, son, your sins are forgiven. Like they were waiting for the healing. And I'm sure that's what everyone else in the house was expecting based on Jesus's ministry up to that point. He's been willing to have entire towns show up wherever he's ministering and he's healed everyone who's sick. And now he says this? But there's some people, Mark wants us to know, right inside the house who are especially on alert with what Jesus says. What Mark tells us in, in verse six is that now some teachers of the law were sitting there. And when you hear teachers of the law, uh, I want you to think these are the, uh, the theology professors. Teachers of the law, these are the Bible scholars. Uh, these are the Torah experts. They knew the Jewish scriptures backwards and forwards. And this is the first time in Mark's gospel that we've come up against some of the religious elite. But they are going to show up several times in this series because they second guess Jesus a lot. Now let's look at, let's look at how they react. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, this is their second guess. Well, hold on. Does Jesus think he he can presume to say this to this man? I mean, where's this coming from? And to be fair, we need to acknowledge that the teachers of the law are absolutely right 
in, at the heart of their second guess. It, it's common for some of us, if we've grown up around church, in the Gospels, uh, Jesus is in conflict with the religious leaders so often that it's easy for us to kind of pigeonhole them as the bad guys who don't understand what faith is about. But it's, it's going to be more helpful for us to at least acknowledge that they are absolutely correct in that last question. I mean, they would have had these kind of scriptures in mind. Isaiah 43, 25, God says through the prophet Isaiah, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. Forgiveness was the exclusive right of God and only God. They might've been thinking of uh, the prophet Micah 7 who says, where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant overlooking the sins of his special people? And the implied answer is there's no other God who can do this. And what was interesting in my study this week was realizing not even the Messiah in the Old Testament and in rabbinic tradition, not even the Messiah, the chosen redeemer of Israel that, that the, the, the Jews had been waiting on, this promised redeemer that God said he would send, not even the Messiah had authority to forgive sins. So we've got to acknowledge these teachers of the law have good reason for their second guess. And if I was going to maybe put in simpler terms what they're asking, here's really at the heart of their second guess. Is Jesus really God? Like they, they have religious grounds for asking this question. But as I reflected this week, it struck me that and there's a lot of people who ask that question from a different place of second guessing and skepticism. Here's the modern version of this second guess, is Jesus really God? The modern version is, okay, I get that Jesus is an influential teacher and historical figure, but that's really the lane he needs to stay in. Because if you start talking about Jesus, that there was anything about him that was divine, I'm out. And, and if you're newer to Christianity, I want you to know that is something that, that Christians believe and profess, that Jesus was in fact God in the flesh, that God came to bring salvation to humanity in human form. And we believe Jesus was God, fully God and fully man. Now I know that that's like, that can kind of just blow our circuits to think about that and go, how is that even possible? Logically, that doesn't make any sense. And this is often at the core of a lot of people's skepticism and second guessing of Jesus. I remember uh, sitting down with, with a, a friend who probably would have de described themselves as, as an agnostic, somebody who is not really sure exactly what they believe. Maybe, maybe there's a God, but you know, we, we, we can't really be sure. And as we started to talk, the longer that, that we talked about Jesus, I could see that my friend would lean in and get really interested when we would talk about Jesus's teachings some of the wisdom that he brought in the things that he said, in the moral ethics that he brought into the world that have been so influ influential in terms of doing unto others what you would want them do to do unto you. So many different things that Jesus taught that this, this friend would lean in and they really liked what was said. But whenever we would talk about the Christian belief that Jesus was God, that's when my friend started to back away. He shared this same second guess. Well, like, hold on. That's just, just a, a bridge too far. 
And if you're listening to me, and, and maybe that's how you would, you, would, you would describe yourself. You'd say, yep, I feel, I feel just like your friend. I, I just, I'm, I'm really out on this idea that Jesus could be God. I've got a, a lot of questions about it. And I, I don't blame you because it can be really hard to fathom. You know, if, if you're somebody who's an agnostic or a skeptic, or maybe you're just trying to seek after truth and, and exploring Christianity, I want to affirm you in, in searching for truth. And I want to say, I, I applaud you for interrogating and investigating the person Jesus of Nazareth. Because based on his continuing influence on our world, it, it, it would be impossible to ignore his influence and still say that you're searching after truth. And, and, I, and I would agree with you that logically it is hard to fathom that God showed up as a child out of wedlock from a backwater town in ancient Israel who was eventually tried and sentenced to death as a criminal by the Roman Empire. That's a lot to take in. So I don't blame you for second guessing. But what I would invite you to wrestle with and consider and perhaps to even second guess some of your own questions is how today are we still talking about this man? How is it that these millennia later, all around the world, people are continuing to talk about, pray to, worship, profess faith in Jesus of Nazareth? The existence of Christianity today as we know it is also very hard to fathom. I mean, logically, why did there arise a zealous group of followers, dozens of people who claimed that they saw Jesus after he had been crucified, that they, they claimed he had risen from the dead? And not just one or two, but dozens and dozens, many of whom have historically verified martyred deaths where they were unwilling to recant their testimony. Logically, how did the earliest Christians persevere in the face of ruthless persecution by the largest and most powerful empire up to that point, the Roman Empire? Logically, how has a religion that started in the Middle East become geographically decentralized like no other world religion? Look at all a bunch of the other world religions and they are geographically centralized where they began in whatever part of the world that was. And yet Christianity has been widely accepted and adopted and continued to be professed in cultures and countries all around the world. And I guess the, the bottom line question that I wrestle with is, is it really possible that the global community of around 2 billion Christians has been hoodwinked in the largest and longest running con in the history of humanity. Now those are, those are big questions and we're not gonna wrestle with them all today, but what I would ask you to consider is, is it possible that Jesus really is God? That he really is empowering his church through the Holy Spirit to persevere and overcome persecution? that Jesus really is offering people real encounters with himself today? Is it possible that Jesus is still working through his church to break societal and geographical barriers by the roof wrecking faith of his followers? Is it possible that Jesus is really God? Now, as you wrestle with that, I hope you can understand that for Christians, we preach and profess 
the divinity of Jesus for the same reason that Mark wrote this gospel and that is to testify about him, the son of God. And believing that Jesus came knowing we needed something that maybe we didn't realize we did. And that gets at the heart of of what comes next in Mark chapter two. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. I imagine that Jesus let that question just hang in the air. He knows what the religious leaders are thinking. He's in conversation with their thoughts. And by the way, we believe, Christians believe, God God knows our hearts, he knows our thoughts. And you may find as you continue to seek after him that he's in conversation with you. And he may be providing for you ears to hear. But Jesus asked this difficult question back to the religious leaders in front of this packed house. And I imagine he just let it sit there for a second. Which is easier? Everybody's quiet. And when I start to think about this question, it's, uh, it's like, okay, let's think about this. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. On the, on the one hand, it would seem like it's easier to pronounce forgiveness because how are you going to verify that? You know, like, like how are you going to look at somebody and say, all right, you, yeah, you, you're forgiven. Okay, if, if I were to do that right now, some, somebody watching, sitting on the couch, all right, from the second one over on the couch, you're forgiven. Like, I could say that, but we have no way of verifying that. How do we know? Only God could verify that. And so it would seem like that's the easier thing to do. On the other hand, these religious leaders... They, uh, they would have known full well that rabbinic tradition taught this particular thing about healing and forgiveness. This is something that these teachers of the law would have helped to teach. Quote, no one gets up from his sickbed unless all his sins are forgiven. That was the, that was the re- religious teaching of the day. And so even for these religious leaders, they're a little bit caught because their own teaching claims that you can't be healed unless you have been forgiven. So now it would seem like forgiveness must be the harder and more important thing to do because otherwise there could be no healing. The whole scene has gotten so complicated now. It's why growing up when I heard this story, everybody focuses on those first few verses when the roof is cleared and their friends get get this paralyzed man to Jesus because that's the part that's easily understood. And this was the part of the story I would always brush over. And yet, the more that I wrestle with this, the more I realize part of what's at the the heart of this, this text and this story for us is a different kind of second guess, which is when we get in front of Jesus, Is forgiveness what I need most? Like the paralyzed man, so many of us end up in front of Jesus or maybe coming into a church or seeking after faith or maybe you clicked on this link looking for some kind of hope and so many of us are looking at it, looking for it in relation to the problems in our lives. And like like this paralyzed man who who would have, would have been looking for a healing, looking for some opportunity for his life to, to be dramatically changed in the here and now in very obvious and concrete ways. 
And then Jesus speaks forgiveness first. And the second guess for us is, is forgiveness what we most need? Jesus, I think, is beginning to help us see the relationship between healing and forgiveness. Not to create a one-to-one ratio that, all right, if, if you're sick, it must mean that you've done something bad in front of God. That was actually believed back in that time and in different stories and different healings, Jesus really debunks that idea. It's not, oh, you sinned, therefore now you're sick. But he still muddies the water with how these two things interact. And I think it's in part to point this crowd and his disciples and the teachers of the law back to his initial message when he started preaching. In Mark 1, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here was his sermon in a nutshell. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That language of repentance was about turning away from our own way of doing life turning away from from a life in which we're in charge and then believing that God has something better for us through the person of Jesus, that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God with him wherever he goes, God's rule and reign and what God really wants for humanity. And if that's the primary thing that Jesus wants us to understand, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that he knows we need that we may not see as quite as important? Because once we get in front of Jesus, we may be looking for help in aspects of our our marriage or relationships. We may be looking for help in in what's happening inside of our family if there's tension. We may be looking for, for help regarding maybe some of our finances and some debt that's gotten out of control. We may be looking for help with even some mental health or, or some things that just some, some insecurity that wells up inside of us. There's so many things that we may come in front of Jesus and really hope this is the first thing that you would solve for me or do for me because it feels as obvious as the paralyzed man laying on the mat. And then Jesus offers us first and foremost forgiveness. And I think about that paralyzed man. He's sitting there. And as he's listening to Jesus ask that question, which is easier? To the teachers of the law, this was theory for them. This was a debate. But for that man sitting there, this is his life. We've got to hear these questions just as personally as he did. Which is easier? To say to the couple on the brink of divorce, your sins are forgiven, or to say your marriage is restored? Which is easier, to say to the alcoholic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, you can put down the drink and walk away and you are freed from addiction? Which is easier, to say to a person, your sins are forgiven, or to say, pride and insecurity have forever lost their hold on you? Which is easier? To say to an aching world, your sins are forgiven, or to say the pandemic is over. These are the very real questions that we have to see before us in this story. Because when we come to Jesus, we may find that he wants to reorient our priorities of what's most difficult and what's most important. And when we don't initially get the thing that we want from Jesus, 
we have to realize that he is still always offering his grace and mercy. And that may be the very sustaining thing we need most. So last year that somebody online asked their Twitter uh, followers, tell me in five words or less why you're still a Christian. Well, the tweet ended up going viral. There were over 11,000 different responses. I was reading through some of those this week and seeing some responses that I loved. Answers like daily encounters with the living God or there's nobody like Jesus. But I noticed that a lot of the answers had to do with God's grace and forgiveness. Tell me in five words or less why you're still a Christian. And people wrote things like, by God's grace alone. Redemption and hope in Christ. Why are you still a Christian? Jesus put me together again. Jesus loved me to wholeness. They wrote things like, this sinner needs a savior. And through the utmost, Jesus saves. Like the paralyzed man, we may initially come to God looking for healing and help with aspects of our lives, but, but what will keep us sustained and what we need in an everlasting reality is God's unfailing love and undeterred mercy. And, and there's another reason Jesus knows that what we need most is forgiveness. Jesus looks out at this broken world and when he came and began to minister and bring with him the kingdom of God, He knew that the brokenness, the pain, the paralysis, the plague, the violence, everything has a source. See, these different examples of suffering and evil are the fruit, but Jesus knows that sin is the root. Jesus didn't just come to bring the spiritual version of palliative care. Palliative care means that you give up on fighting the disease and you just try to make someone as comfortable as possible knowing, well, they're, they're eventually going to die from this. Sometimes if we're not careful, ministries can get in the, the habit of inadvertently providing palliative care and, and trying to help here and help there and a couple adjustments, a couple improvements, but not getting at the source of what we really need from God because Jesus didn't just come to make us comfortable. He came to bring a cure for the disease of sin. And because sin is the real cause for all the evil and pain we experience, Jesus came to save us from it. See, all of these issues stem back to this. It's Romans 5, 12 says this, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Jesus knows that sin isn't just something we experience, it's something we participate in. We sin. We go against what God wants. We ignore God's rule and reign. We push back against God's kingdom And when we stand before God on judgment day, what we will need most is God's forgiveness and grace. That paralyzed man that day, the thing he would most need before God on judgment day was not healthy legs. It was being made whole by the grace of God. The thing that so many of us need is not not some adjustment to a part of our life. It is our entire life, our heart and soul covered in the blood of Jesus 
who cleanses us of our sins. That's what we most need someday before God when he judges the earth. And Jesus knows this, which is why in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, he came to bring forgiveness and to look at each one of us and say, though we didn't deserve it, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Child, your sins are forgiven. And it's interesting that this scene, when Jesus offers forgiveness, the religious leaders cry blasphemy. That will eventually be what they use to put him on trial. And that trial will lead to Jesus being taken to a cross. And on that cross, God himself in the flesh will die to earn for that paralyzed man what was just spoken over him, forgiveness and mercy. On the cross, Jesus took all of our sin, both our personal sin and to put to death, capital S, sin, evil and suffering in the world and to release its hold on each one of us that by the power of Jesus in his love and mercy, his body broken, his blood poured out. And then after being buried in the grave, three days later to rise and show he has ultimate authority over sin and death. Jesus did all of that because he knew it's what we most need. And yet in his compassion and mercy, Jesus does care about our current problems. And God often moves in mercy to bring daily transformation. Look at what happens in Mark chapter two. Jesus continues after asking that hard question and says, but I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he says to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. I have a, uh, I have a ministry friend and mentor named Kyle. And Kyle recently uh, shared the story of meeting a man named Adam. Adam had a really hard upbringing had actually, uh, grown up in such a difficult circumstance that he wasn't even literate through some bad choices, ended up with a criminal record and even ended up in prison. While Adam was in prison, he uh, met a fellow inmate who found out that Adam couldn't read and write. And this fellow inmate offered to teach Adam how to read and how to write, but with one catch that they would only study using the gospels. So as Adam studied using the story of Jesus, his heart was transformed and he became a follower of Jesus. And we got, when he got out of prison, he started attending a small church in a small town. And it didn't take long before, as can often happen in small communities, word got around about Adam's criminal record. And some people in the church started to get pretty upset that somebody like Adam was in their house. And so a, a very influential family came and spoke to the pastor, of the church, and just said, look, you need to tell him to leave. And if you don't, we're going to leave. And the pastor responded to this family that Adam was welcome. 
That family decided to leave and then some other families got angry about that and it started looking like more people were going to leave. And during this time, Adam started to second guess if he should even be part of this church. He may just need to leave and, and make, you know, not make any more of a mess for the pastor, for the congregation. And when all of this was coming to a head, it was one Sunday night service. And at the end of service, the pastor stood up in front of the church and, and asked Adam to come forward. And Adam suddenly knew what had happened. Undoubtedly, Adam thought this, this pastor's heard his criminal record. And now he's inviting him up to basically tell him he needs to not come back. Adam stood and started walking forward. His, his head was down. He was embarrassed. The other people in the church, you know, they, they watched and they kind of wished that the pastor had chosen a, a less public way to do this so it wouldn't be so awkward, but it needed to happen. Adam got up in front of the church and the pastor looked at him and, and then said, I, I want the church to know I, I've made an important decision. Ever since Adam gotten out of prison, it's been, uh, it's been really hard for Adam to find a job. And so I want the church to know that we're hiring Adam to take care of our facilities here at the building. And he reached into his pocket and that pastor pulled out a set of keys to the church. And he turned to Adam and he said, I, I know you're going to be needing these to open the building Sunday mornings and close up at the end of the day. And when Adam was telling this story to my friend Kyle, there was a tear coming down his cheek. And Adam told my friend Kyle, it was the first time that I ever had a key to anything in my life. And when Adam told my friend Kyle that story, he wasn't in prison. He was at a pastor's conference. And he's been serving in the local church for several years now. I love stories like that because they paint the picture of how primary and important God's forgiveness is. That once his forgiveness has been spoken over us, we don't get to let the past or our sins or our mistakes define us anymore. And I love it also because I, I want to be part of a church family where even if things get messy in the house, we see people's lives changed by the forgiveness of God. And maybe sometimes it's going to be a little bit costly. Maybe sometimes when the roof comes in, there's going to be a mess around that bothers some of us. Maybe sometimes we won't be getting from God the thing we first thought we wanted. And yet when God's grace works in powerful ways, we might walk away from times together as a church and say, I've never seen anything like this. Because when God's forgiveness and grace moves in our lives and brings healing and transformation, we are first and foremost cured from our spiritual paralysis by which we cannot escape. And yet by God's grace, we are set free. And then we're going to see more of God's kingdom breaking in, in the here and now with what he does. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for the ways that you work in our lives for the ways that you love us, the ways that you see our broken state and you speak forgiveness over us. And Lord, I ask that you'd help us today to receive that forgiveness again. I ask for those listening who aren't Christians yet that they would lean in 
and realize there is a God inviting them to experience the same forgiveness and transformation. And Lord, would you shape us to believe that you really are God, sovereign over all, and that your forgiveness and grace is the most important expression of your love in our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.